This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put an end to my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the and campaign's church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Now, Chris, from what I hear, and I only hear vaguely about it, there was some kind of big national game last night or something like that. I don't I don't really even know the details of it. What I did hear about the game that happened last night was that it was a waste, a complete waste of time. And so what I don't want to do on this show is waste any more time talking about it or talking about who won that game. So instead of talking about that, we will move on to much more important things. I mean, on the Church Politics Podcast, we don't have time to talk about trivial matters. OK, so I want to move on to more important matters uh, and we'll, we'll just skip on by that. One thing I want I was looking at uh, earlier today, Chris, was Axios came out with a report about the exploding population growth in Texas. And it actually gave like the top 10 states that are, are explode that had the most population growth between 2021 and 2022. Number one was Texas. Number two was Florida. And I hear Florida over a longer period of time actually has more population growth. Then you have North Carolina. You have Georgia. You have Arizona. You have South Carolina, Tennessee, Washington, Utah and Idaho, all with uh, really strong population growth. But Texas and, and Florida are way above the rest. I didn't see Illinois on there. Outside of Georgia, I probably spend most of my time in, in Illinois. Uh, wh- what's going on there, man? And what does this tell you? Because most of this, these are red states. These these are red states, um, even though they are also, I guess, with the exception of, uh, of Florida now, uh, states that are getting more purpley. Uh, because of all the population growth. But what, what I noticed immediately is that they are all warm states. Ah. <laughs> so I think that we'll say Washington, but yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, in, in, in the, in the list, but in the, in like the top five, you, you got like warm states. Um, Washington isn't super cold. I really don't even know. I haven't really been there all that much, but that's my we, guess. I had clients in, in Utah, Washington not super like a year. Idaho. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not like it's not like Chicago. I can tell you that. Um, that is true. So, so you think it's you think it's less about policies and more about weather? Um, I think it's a combination of policy and okay. weather. That's fair. Um, that's fair. You know, low taxes and good climate you probably can attract a lot of people. That's the key. And uh, as much as I love Illinois, we know that you guys have neither, but you do have a lot of other good things, including Chicago. Uh, so, so we'll run with There's that. A lot of people well. here working on that too. 
<laughs> yeah, for sure, for we'll sure, see. for sure. We'll stop it. Well, y'all know, y'all know how we do, man. We want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. We also want to uh, give a shout out to all those who uh, contribute to the AND campaign and to the Church Politics Podcast. If you want to become a patron or a Patreon subscriber, you can go to patreon.com slash churchpolitics and you will get even more content than you get just from uh, the, the regular show. So we got some stuff to talk about, though, Chris. So uh, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. And as we often do, uh, let's start off with some scripture, Chris, if you don't mind. I want to start off in Matthew chapter four, verses verse 24. And it says news about Jesus spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were. Uh, ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Chris, what we know from the Gospels is that Jesus cared deeply about the afflicted. He made time for them. Uh, He pitied them, but he didn't only pity them. He also treated them with dignity, uh, which wasn't necessarily the norm in his day. And I believe, Chris, that to the extent possible, uh, we should also self-sacrificially care for the afflicted, including those uh, with mental illness. Uh, This is not something to be taken lightly. Uh, This is not something to be trivialized. Uh, And it's something that we have talked about before. And I think within all our families, friends, and even within the AND campaign, we know people who have some some serious issues there and and love and care for them and, and also know that they bring value to the things that we do. Here's a question. When did mental illness become fashionable? When did everyone start using terms like triggered, PSD, and self-care? When did it become cool to show off self-harm scars? When did broadcasting a mental health diagnosis give people status? These questions were posed not by me, but by Pamela Garfield Jager. Uh, a social worker and mental health therapist in San Francisco with a primary focus on the mental health of children. She was writing this in on her Substack in an article entitled From Destigmatizing to Normalizing Mental Ill- Illness. And she starts the art- article off like this. She says, I find myself in a strange I find myself in a strange position as someone who has spent over 20 years campaigning to destigmatize mental health to now feeling queasy as I hear the general public use the use therapy speak to normalize mental health issues. She then talks about uh, how she's organized around suicide prevention and really dedicated her life, Chris, to making sure mentally ill people receive help. Um, and, And that's really what destigmatizing is about making sure people don't feel bad for trying to receive help and letting people know that there's there's a problem there now here's what she says next though chris there is an important distinction between destigmatizing something and celebrating it she says that she does not want mental illness celebrated and that she believes that people with genuine mental illness don't want it celebrated either she says patients ask me is this normal And I respond directly with compassion. No, it isn't normal. I go on to be honest with them and say, this doesn't happen to everyone. In fact, it doesn't happen to most people. 
This response gives them relief. They are relieved to hear the truth. If they are led to believe that this kind of pain and suffering is normal, how does that help them? What kind of hope is that? What's the point of working towards healing if this is the norm? Wow, that's deep. She goes on to say, today, mental mental health issues are celebrated. People broadcast their diagnosis on their social media pages. Mental illness is glorified on TV and in film. Celebrities get more attention when they speak publicly about their mental health issues. As a result, people often uh, self-diagnose just to feel like they're a part of something. Many modern therapists and healthcare providers believe it is kinder to say severe symptoms are normal when that's just not true. She goes, she says also the word affirm is used way too often nowadays. In addition, kids are learning to play up their mental health issues because they learn they will get uh, excused from important life challenges unchecked. Just last year in a teen group therapy session that she led, she said that kids admitted that they had lied about their mental health uh, issues to gain victim status. She said they proudly admitted it. Victimhood is being reinforced by the adults around them. So they learn to gain the system. And then in conclusion, she she goes here. She says, uh, while we need to give allowances for serious uh, struggles, much of healing is about facing real life. It certainly isn't about being celebrated for having a a medical or mental health condition. There is no incentive to get healthy when you are celebrated and reap benefits for being sick. The other major problem with all this celebration and minimization of real symptoms is that it's getting harder and harder to help to to tell who needs help. We do we do need to celebrate being healthy. We need to celebrate hard work and perseverance. We need to celebrate healing. When wellness is celebrated, true mental health issues are recognized and treated with compassion. Then there will be less incentive to remain mentally ill. Uh, and those who truly need help will receive it. Interesting um, article. Uh, one, you know, will be in our, it'll be in our show notes if you want to read it for yourself. And what I'm gathering from this, Chris, uh, is that we should love and encourage the sick. But celebrate wellness instead of celebrating sickness. Um, and I think I think this phenomenon that's the phenomenon that's detailed in this article is an important example of how even our compassion can go wrong. Uh, We tend to think that if we have good intentions, then our impact will always be positive. And I think that may be a logical deduction, but the Bible never says that. The truth is we're broken. On our own, even our kindness can run afoul. This certainly doesn't mean we shouldn't be kind. Please don't draw that conclusion. But it does mean that we have to face reality and be honest about what's really going on. Uh, We don't help people by lying and celebrating brokenness. Now, Chris, I could be wrong, but I think that most of the people who celebrate and I want to put celebrate in quotes because they probably wouldn't say they're necessarily celebrating it. But I think most of the people who uh, this writer would say are celebrating mental illness have good intentions. I believe that they simply want to make people feel better and they simply want people to be in a better position and not suffer so much. But bad things happen when our compassion lacks truth. Uh, This therapist said 
that 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 many of her patients are relieved when they hear the truth that their situation wasn't normal because that gave them hope for actually moving towards healing. Um, and I think that's something that we really uh, need to need to think about. Um, I think we assume that our white lies accomplish much more than they do. And this particular article, I think, disputes that uh, idea. Chris, what were your thoughts on the article? Yeah, I was uh, first off, uh, I should say to the uh, church politics uh, community, because I didn't say anything about what happened last night, but I went to all colleges that don't have football teams. So I have no uh, dog in that fight. But uh, this article, I'm, uh, I was so grateful to read it and so grateful that a uh, somebody who's been involved in mental health and involved in therapy and on the front lines of destigmatizing mental illness actually uh, has stepped forward to write this article. So grateful that uh, she actually gained a Substack subscriber when, when I read it, because I think it's, it's, it's so, so important. Um, so, you know, first off, I come out of a, a, a more Pentecostal background where one of the things that we have sort of wrestled with in, uh, in these circles is like this idea that everything is just like people need deliverance, right? And sometimes people really do need like care, like, um, they need therapy and not just deliverance. And that's not, you know, that I don't believe in deliverance, but it's not always just people need deliverance. Um, and so th- this this kind of like frontline fight on destigmatizing mental health is so important, has been so important, uh, and has accomplished a lot. And I think is it is important to like acknowledge that and to and to celebrate that. But then this other pendulum is something that I've been actually uh, dealing with. And we've actually been having conversations about this inside of the congregation because it's like now everything is mental illness. Um, and if everything is mental illness, that actually does cloud the room, crowd the space for those who are, who are actually struggling with uh, significant mental illness. And it, it makes it I'm glad you hit the point and you read it. But it's the one that that we've faced here in the congregation. I don't want to like put a bunch of details out there. But when you have folks who are actually suffering from mental illness, like diagnosable, severe mental illness, but everybody else is also suffering from mental illness, it so significantly diminishes the hope uh, in that person. Um, Because it's like everybody's dealing with this to some extent or another. And so what hope do I really have of ever getting any better? Uh, which is not the aim of therapy, right? Like uh, psychotherapy is is soul healing, right? Like that's the 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 root of that language. Um, and as believers, we should believe like strongly in soul healing. Like I, I think our God is the greatest soul healer. Uh, that we have. So I'm grateful that she's making that distinction. Now, I, I think that it's important for, for us to to make room for like conversations around mental health, right? Because I do think that one of the things that's impacting this is our sort of our culture's tendency toward the uh, sort of like false dichotomy, right? So if it's either I am just like perfectly happy and well-adjusted or I'm mentally ill, 
a lot of people are going to say, well, I don't feel perfectly happy and well-adjusted, so I must be mentally ill. And the reality is, just like in your physical health, you can be neither the picture of like, you know, complete and total health, nor like under treatment for like heart failure. Um, you there's there's like a lot of space in the middle where you're relatively healthy. You want to maintain your health, do some things to to be healthier. And and I think all those same realities kind of exist in the world of mental health. Uh, I think there's a real opportunity, almost like a, 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 at least a, a role to play. I won't say a, a burden, but at least a role to play for the church in the pulpit. Because I think this is the place where we're kind of like church community and even pastoral counseling comes in. Like I always talk to my people about the fact that like I've got training in pastoral counseling. I'm not a therapist. Right. And both of those things, they're distinct and they're both needful um, in certain situations. Uh, and so I think there's there's room, you know, for a lot of conversation around mental health and how we stay healthy mentally and emotionally um, without doing the false dichotomy thing where, you know, if you're not perfectly happy and well adjusted, then it's mental illness. You need therapy, you're self-diagnosing based on, you know, Internet articles and that kind of thing. Yeah, you make such a good point. The effort to destigmatize mental illness has been a blessing. And I don't think that came directly initially from the church. So it's a blessing that we may have received from folks outside of the church, from, from non-believers. And we shouldn't be surprised that blessings can come from outside of the church, right? This is a part, part of the reason why pluralism and hearing others out and listening to them is important. In the Bible, you see people from outside of the church bringing things that the church uh, benefits from. And, and everybody, you know, uh, helps flourish. So no, that's number one. That, that, that effort has been a blessing because I, too, come from a I don't I just don't remember anybody getting that sort of hope. Back in the day, you know, it wasn't something that was talked about. Good therapy is a blessing. So, God, we know that God delivers. We know that God heals. Maybe some of that is done through these this process. Right. Um, that's not out of the that's not out of the picture. So we want to be very clear about that. But it is very interesting how those things can be blessings. But in our brokenness as people, we can take a blessing and we can take that destigmatizing de uh, uh, element and then go too far with it. Anything, any good that humans get a hold of, we can take it too far. And I, and I think this may be an example of that. You know, something else I can mention is last week, Chris, I talked about being more thoughtful about the language we adopt. That point is addressed here, too. Right. I, I can almost guarantee that if you or I went on social media right now and went down our timeline, we will likely see someone talking about their PTSD. For some, it's real. For some, it's an exaggeration. I'm not qualified to say which is which. And this certainly isn't to tell anybody to go out there and tell somebody they're faking. That ain't your role. We're, we're not telling you to be the judge of that if you don't have any expertise in that. That's not the point of what we're trying to say. Uh, we should we should be very careful about that. But you would see somebody talking about that. That may very well be exaggerating because everybody does not have that. So you may have some issue. You may have an issue that, you know, brings you back into a, a tough place. That doesn't mean it rises to PTSD. The other thing you might say is, I would, I would say on that point, while you don't want to tell anybody not to do this, I'm I'm a little bit like I, I'm passionate about this because like if if you've pastored folks who like did tour to, tours of duty in Vietnam, don't go like have a conversation with that person before you say that you have PTSD. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying anybody is faking. I'm just saying 
It's a real not everybody that they grew up in a neighborhood that heard gunshots and stuff like yeah, it may be an experience that molds you and has some it has an impact on you. That doesn't mean you have PTSD, right? Uh the other thing I would say is does everything that offends you is everything that offends you really a trigger? Or should that word be saved for people with more severe issues? Because that word is used a lot. Like if you say something, Chris, and I don't really like it or I'm offended by it, you have triggered me. And, and I mean, when you talk about being overused, th- that's one of those. Is it possible in trying to help others that if that's not really <laughs> if it's not really a serious mental condition for us, that maybe we shouldn't use it? Um, maybe we should think twice about it. Any thoughts just on those words, Chris? It would seem to me that we could be a little more thoughtful in the words. we. Yeah, maybe it gets your point across. Usually it doesn't get your point across to people who don't subscribe to that kind of language. But maybe it's something that we we should consider not using. Go ahead. I, I think so. And I, I would say to listeners, if you didn't listen to last week's episode, you should go back and, and, and listen to Justin talk about this in, in detail, just in general, how we use words. But here... I would say this is one of those cases where just find another word. Like you're mad, you're upset, that that hurt, whatever. But people put time into developing this language for the purpose of helping the mentally ill. Uh, and so in an effort to be compassionate toward the mentally ill and the people who are working to uh, to help them, let's just choose other language. Don't say you're triggered. If if you're if you're not if you don't have like an absolute good reason to say that there are lots of other words available uh, in the English language. I love the the openness and flexibility of of contemporary English. You can even make up your own word, but you know some of these things we should just let them be in the domain uh, for which they were intended. Thank thank God that most of us are in a state where. Even something that's dramatically offensive doesn't traumatize us, right? That's a, that's a blessing. So we can say, man, it you know, it, it, I was uh, I was really impacted by what was said. You know, it stunned me. But do we have to go? You know, go to the next level? I mean, in the article, she even talks about some magazines like showing off kids that have the scars, you know, from when they cut themselves. Why would you show that, especially how kids react? And that's the other thing that that got me, that kids were adapting. And kids do that. Kids are smarter than we think. Kids were adapting to what the adults were doing. So they said, oh, self-harm, I'm going to get a certain level of attention for that. Or I'm going to get a certain level of attention for saying I have mental health issues. Then that's what I'll do. Absolutely. That's why the truth matters, man. I mean, this is an and campaign type conversation, right? The the truth matters, even when we're trying to be kind. Like, I've I've gotten into heated conversations with people who who I've worked with closely and love right here in the city of Chicago, because we have this kind of uh, what I think is, is sort of a self-reinforcing dynamic where we've created this narrative that like, oh, people who grow up like in, in poverty and around violence, well, they experience trauma and that's why they don't do good in school. And that's why they go out and commit crime. And it holds us from keep holding young people accountable for their behavior. And I'm like, bro, like, my personal, like my immediate family had folks who had drug addiction involved in gangs. I've seen people get shot. I've grown up and I don't like carjack people. Right. So that's not causative. It's not saying that it doesn't have any impact and we need to be compassionate toward that. But when we spin up this narrative 
that, oh, it's trauma. And it's kind of like, because that's one of the, the dynamics. And, and the article talks about this. When somebody's having an actual manic episode, they are literally out of control of their of their actions, right? Like they cannot control it. Uh, and so to to put that label on absolutely every bad behavior and like, oh, well, it's trauma from growing up in poverty and violence. Well, then there's no accountability in the culture at all. Uh, and that's and- not the, the that's not the black tradition either. And I want to be very clear on that. I, I don't know who you, who raised y'all, but I've never heard my elders not hold people accountable or say, oh, we're poor. Therefore, we can just go steal or we can. No, that's never been how we were raised to think. And to me, that's not love. I hate to hear what poor kids can't do. Now, should we consider the, the the hardships they go through when they make mistakes? Should they be treated in some ways the same way as a kid in a different place should be treated when they make mistakes? Absolutely. We, we take those things into consideration. But you think it's love to tell some of these brilliant kids what they're not going to be able to accomplish because of what they've been through? And so they already are thinking that uh, there's a there's a ceiling to what they're going to be able to do before they even tried? To me... On the left, that's one of the most, I mean, I really, like you said, you argue about it. I really dislike that. And I want to be very clear when it comes to the black church tradition, that ain't come from here. So y'all can act like, you know, you can say who who else puts these standards and wants to hold people accountable. I come from a community that believes in accountability and also believes in compassion and caring for people in very tough circumstances. That's That's my tradition. I can't speak for everybody else, but that's the tradition I know. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that this is uh, hopefully a very uh, helpful conversation. But I'm again, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very grateful for uh, the article uh, and aim for where it comes from. Right. Because this is somebody who is involved in therapy, deeply involved in mental health, uh, has advocated for destigmatization. Um, and so I, I think it's coming from a, a good and a right place. I certainly suggest people go uh, and just read the article and, and, and maybe continue to think about these things man that was that that was good well we will be right back on the church politics podcast and we are back on the church politics podcast with justin gibney and the right reverend christopher butler well chris we watched it uh, after several days and 15 ballots, 15, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican from California, won the speakership in the United States House of Representatives. It was a long time coming and probably a very embarrassing ride for him, uh, I would imagine. Uh, but he got there. Now, in order to get there, he had to give up some things. He had to make some significant concessions, Chris, in order to get where he wanted to. Uh, he, he had to make some 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 big changes to the rules in his negotiations with his, with some some of the conservatives in his party. And so I want to talk a little bit of Chris about what are the new rules in the house based on this negotiation that Kevin McCarthy had with with this group that really did not want to vote for him and 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 embarrassed him until they got what they wanted. Uh, number 1 is the motion to vacate. Uh now and this is the rule this is a, this is a rule that's coming back because I think the motion to vacate was there before. Any one single member can call for a motion to vacate the speaker's chair, making it easier, much easier to trigger a no confidence vote of McCarthy. 
So in order to get in office, he had to make it easier for them to push him out of office. Okay, most people wouldn't want to do that. It seems like he felt like he had to do that. Next, McCarthy agreed to hold a vote on a balanced budget amendment, congressional term limits and border security. Next, legislation that raises the nation's debt ceiling must be paired with spending cuts. This is going to be a big issue when Congress tries to raise the debt debt ceiling, right? Uh, They're going to have to couple that with spending cuts, and we're going to see how that turns out or if they can find a way to wiggle out of it. We'll see. Next is something for you who are uh, patrons and and subscribe to our Patreon uh, is the Church uh, Committee 2.0. The church committee, uh, we'll talk about that later, but basically this creates an investigative committee to probe the weaponization of of federal of the federal government. So to probe the FBI, to probe the CIA, to make sure that they're not abusing their power. And anybody who knows the history of those organizations know there has been many abuses of power. So that may not be such a bad thing. Right. Uh, next, you have uh, appropriations bills must be moved individually. Uh, Instead of Congress passing a massive end of the year spending package called the omnibus bill, we've talked about the omnibus bill here. Again, they can't just pass that one huge sweeping bill. They have to move uh, these uh, things individually. Uh, Next, they have to give 72 hours to review bills before they come to the floor. Okay, I can dig that. Uh, something else that they got was, and, and many of these folks were in the Freedom Caucus, right? These were the folks pushing back against McCarthy, more conservative, especially on uh, uh, financial issues. Uh, but they got more representation on the House Rules Committee, which is a very big deal. That is a very big committee uh, in Congress. Also, uh, they must cap discretionary spending in the House uh, at, at, at fiscal uh, 222 levels. Right. So they can't go above where they were in 2022. Uh, This will result likely in lower numbers for defense and domestic programs. So defense spending and domestic programs, which I'm sure our friend Chris is not happy about. But we'll we'll hear about that from him. Then last two. And this is not an exhaustive list. There's other things. They will bring back the Holman rule, uh, which allows them to reduce the salary of government officials and give members the ability to offer more amendments on the floor. A lot of people were saying uh, during Pelosi's tenure, you were not allowed to make amendments to to bills. And they were saying that, you know, that goes against kind of the nature of this legislative body. Chris, what do you take from from these rules changes? I mean, it's interesting to see that, you know, some of the stuff we're worried about because we think it may impact some programs that are important. But then other things, it was like, well, that's actually might be a good thing. Go ahead. Yeah. So I I'll say up front that I do think some of this was laced with, you know, a a touch of hypocrisy. I guess that is just what happens in Washington, D.C., because these things like, you know, uh, fixing votes on uh, cutting social spending and that type of thing. You know, you have a group of folks who are making an argument against backroom deals and that kind of thing in Congress. And their overall argument was about making Congress more open uh, and giving individual members more power. Uh, and that is a backroom deal. Like, so these kind of like committee spots and uh, fixing the, the debate, uh, those are the kind of things, the kind of backroom deals that these folks were saying that they were advocating against. You know, I guess that's just par for the course in DC. But I, I think on the whole, 
I'm grateful for the process. Like I, I think that it's a, it was a big missed opportunity for um, now Speaker McCarthy because uh, I, I think that if if you were looking at this in September of last year, you had to know that you were going to give up a lot of this stuff if you were ever going to get that gavel. And so I think that he had the opportunity to like come into this being the most courageous speaker in modern history and not the weakest his, uh, speaker in modern history. Um, if he had led the charge to give up some of his power from the speaker's office, he could have positioned himself as being courageous instead of being uh, dragged, kicking and screaming into this weaker position. I would say this, though, Chris, there could be an argument if I were advising him to say, if you already conceded before you go into negotiation, then they're just going to push you further. But, you know, that argument is there to be made. And, and maybe you, you push into this, but at some point you kind of like take the reins of this debate, I think, sooner than he did. So it, so it doesn't just look like you got the beat down. And, and now you're a weak speaker because most of this stuff, like, again, those those things on the budget in particular and the the committee seats, I'm against those because they are specifically the kind of backroom dealing that the holdouts were saying that they were arguing against. But a lot of what is in the rules package is actually, I think, bringing back uh, Congress. Right. Like this will be a Congress that is more open, that has more debate, that that makes it a little bit more difficult and time consuming uh, to pass legislation. But also, I think, makes it more likely that bipartisanship can take place uh, in the House of Representatives. Now, whether that will extend across the government, I don't know. But I think that there are a ton of things like I, I went through and, and read the whole 55 page rules package. And they, there are tons of things throughout the, the package uh, that are changing, um, you know, little things like the speaker uh, in the 117th Congress had the, had the power on any vote at any time to make a five minute window for voting. Right. So usually, um, you know, the, the, the vote stays open until nobody's uh, sort of in, in the well trying to vote. But at any time, the speaker just say, like, you got five minutes to vote on this and, you know, then you just can't vote after the five minutes. Speaker's not going to have that kind of power. That's power to shut down debate. You talked about the ability of members to bring amendments from the floor. You got to remember, these are the rules of the House of Representatives, not just the rules of the Republican caucus. Right. Democrats will be able to bring amendments from the floor. You know, it, it, it opens up Congress. Uh, there's there are changes in the rules uh, on something that uh, the, the 117th Congress and, and lots of previous Congresses uh, had basically a rule where you couldn't sort of ask for a point of order on what they call germaneness. Right. So if you're trying to add a writer to a bill uh, or even bring an amendment to a bill and committee, on the floor, you couldn't bring amendments from the floor, so it would happen for. But you could ask for a, a, a at least a point of order and get some time of debate uh, on germaneness, right? How is this particular thing that you're doing germane to the intent of the bill uh, as it was, you know, initially introduced? If you can't do that, then people just add anything to any legislation at any time, and nobody can say anything about it. That's not how Congress is, suppo is supposed to work. So a lot of this stuff that does divest power from the speaker. Um, 
but it does bring power back into uh, the conversation, even on some of the financial stuff. They have a piece in here uh, where when they do have budget bills and financial bills, they're going to be asking the the budget office uh, and the Committee on Taxation to do not just uh, very specific analysis, but actually give some macroeconomic analysis. And, you know, if you think about that from a conservative standpoint, they want to hear the budget office talk about, you know, how is this going to impact uh, inflation and uh, the GDP and that type of thing. But you also have to remember, like, job creation, that's part of macroeconomics. Like, if, if you think about, like, how this is impacting specific populations, that's part of macroeconomics. So that I think that opens up a door for ranking members on certain committees who are looking at bills to ask for other types of economic impact, you know, beyond what the conservatives might be looking for. So I, I think that what you get as a result for the most part, is a, a weaker speakership and a more open Congress, uh, which I'm mostly in favor of. They did cut some deals that are that are not in keeping with the spirit of, of much of what they tried to do in the rules. And so, you know, you got to call out that hypocrisy. Um, but I think on the whole, it's going to be a more exciting Congress. Yeah. And I mean, I think I speak for both of us when we say when it comes to the Freedom Caucus, our economics are probably very different than theirs, right? Our, our policy prescriptions would be very, very, very different. And so I think there is, for me, reason to worry that they'll be cutting things that are important to, to people and that people could suffer for this, right? So it's, it's not it's not anything small. But at the same time, can I realize- If they abided by their own principles, they would have not cut a backroom deal and said, let's go to the floor and debate cutting Medicare and Social Security. Because the, the American people then will have an opportunity to listen to you make that argument. And there is not a consensus in the United States to cut Social Security and, Medi- and Medicare. Not, not far from it. Far from it. So, th- so this is of consequence. Now, here's the tough part. Here's what we try to get folks to do and think differently. We can know that's of consequence and, and, and hope that it doesn't go the way that the Freedom Caucus wants it to go. And still look at this and say there were some things that they actually got done that needed to happen. We have to start thinking on that level to say, man, I certainly hope they do not cut some of these very important Social Security things like that. Right. At the same time. And you don't have to. Have, it's, that's not like the Christian position that Christian could have a different position. But at the same time saying what else was here and can we as a as somebody who's commentating and trying to give information, at least let people know what else was there. And sometimes we say, who did it? OK, I don't like it. What was in it? OK, that one thing I don't like. Throw the rest of it out. We got to dig deeper. Even if we were to say that we wish this no- negotiating didn't go down, we've got to be able to evaluate the whole thing. That's what me and Chris are trying to get people to do. The other thing I would just end by saying, you know, a lot of conservative commentators don't like uh, McCarthy. Their big thing with him is they say he doesn't have a core. You know, he's for Trump. He's against, you know, he's against January 6th. He's for it. He, he goes, does anything he has to do to get in this seat? And I think a lot of people resent the type of politics that got him where he is um, because he doesn't seem to be one of those people that's really standing on a whole lot of principles. I'm not going to say he's completely without principle, but even conservatives and other folks in his party will say that's why they didn't want him there, because he really would do anything to get power. Uh, and that's the, kind of the problem with with McCarthy. I mean, I, 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 my uh, my response to that, and I've said this in conservative situations and in progressive uh, is that at the end of the day, like a lot of politics is an exercise in power. Uh, like even if you get folks who are like super ideological, they're either going to like make deals or or get tossed. Right. Sure. And 
I think. But there are extremes, though, right? There are extremes. There are extremes. Um, and, and, and this dude, you know, may fall into that category, but if, if, if I'm a conservative sitting here today, I'm looking at a lot of these rule changes. I mean, uh, they're going to have votes. Like we talked about the, uh, some of the budget stuff, but they're going to have a vote on, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Taxpayer funded abortions. They're going to have a vote on, uh, what they call the kind of like born alive type legislation where, uh, Doctors right now don't necessarily have to make efforts to save a child that survives an attempted abortion. Um, and they're going to have like up or down votes on these things. Uh, so a lot of stuff that conservatives want to see uh, took place here. So, I mean, be mad, but take the win and and try to work hard. And I think that goes for conservatives and progressives. There are opportunities on both sides of the aisle here. Yeah. Yeah. Think, think your way through it. Because it's so easy to get on Twitter, get on CNN, get on Fox News and just go with the narrative that they're giving you. The narrative that Democrats and all those folks are putting out there is look how dysfunctional this is. This is terrible. This is all terrible. Well, maybe it was dysfunction. Maybe it did look terrible. Maybe I don't like the dudes who are behind it. But there's more to it. That's what we're trying to get y'all to see. We'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Uh... Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, the Democrat from New York, is the new Democratic Party minority leader in the House of Representatives, what we were just talking about. He's taking over leadership from Nancy Pelosi. Uh, he's 52 years old. Uh, he's also the first uh, black uh, leader of, of the party in the House. Uh, and I'd, I'd be remiss not to mention that he's my fraternity brother, uh, which makes it no no surprise that he's he's reaching this level of achievement. The brother in here with the office with me, not Chris, but the other one wouldn't know anything about that kind of achievement. So I, I got to shout that out. Yo, to the to Cap Alpha Psi, we just had our 112th uh, uh, anniversary. Hakeem Jeffries is, is a talented brother. He's an intelligent brother. He gave a riveting speech after McCarthy's win that went viral, to say the least. I, I got it from so many people. Uh, uh, I, I didn't know when it was going to come next. I mean, a lot of people were excited about the speech he gave. And he kind of ran down, you know, uh, as as uh, Dr. Charlie Dates, who was our friend, noted uh, on Twitter, he said that, you know, he had some of the homiletics of, of the black church in, in, in part of this uh, speech. Uh, some of the things he said, let me just give a brief quote. He said, you know, 
basically he was saying that we will work with the Republicans where we can. All right. Uh, but we will not. There's certain things we won't do. And so he says we will always choose maturity over uh, Mar-a-Lago. We'll choose normalcy over negativity, opportunity over obstruction, people over politics, quality of life issues over QAnon, uh, reason over racism, substance over slander, triumph over tyranny, understanding over ugliness, voting rights over voter suppression, working families over the well-connected, Xenio uh, uh, over xenophobia. Yes, we can do all these things. And he said, we'll be zealous represent- representatives, but there may be uh, confrontation without zero sum confrontation. Uh, and so I thought I thought it, I would thought it was well done. Um, Chris, any thoughts just about that speech in general or just about Hakeem and, and what he's been able to do? Yeah, I mean, first off, I uh, I super regret not tweeting. Uh, I learned my lesson because I watched the thing live and I was like, yo, they let somebody who grew up in a black church somewhere uh, in, in the speakership. Because, I mean, if you if you watched it live after all of the uh, the turmoil that that went on that night into the morning. I mean, uh, you you in in live uh, uh, delivery. I mean, you were just getting all the church feels uh, when he was delivering it. And so, you know, I I think, you know, from the black church, you're welcome, America, um, because he he learned to be that kind of rhetorician. Listen to some preachers, I guarantee you. Um, yep. And so, you know, but even before getting to that close, which, he, again, he wouldn't know anything about where he not listened to, to black preachers, but getting to that close, um, he he, de- I thought he delivered a really good speech coming from uh, a minority leader um, because he, he struck the tone of let's make Congress work. Um, you know, talked about the intention of uh, the Democratic caucus uh, to, in good faith, try to find places where folks can work together. And I think in, an, in a narrowly divided Congress, uh, that is the attitude that you want coming from. Uh, the leaders of both of the caucuses. So I thought it was, um, I mean, it, it was, it was, he could have spent that whole time like dogging Republicans, making fun of their process and all that stuff. And he, he, he rose above that moment uh, in the entire speech. And then, you know, uh, just as a, as a lover of the, the sport of rhetoric, he nailed the close. Uh, so I thought it was a good speech. Yeah, it was a really good speech. Now, um, that that's some high praise. And if you and I, Chris, were loyal and obedient Democrats, we would stop there. Right. If, if we were just doing it for the culture, uh, we would not say anything further. But unfortunately or fortunately, we don't do the whole partiality thing. Uh, if we go, if we're going to critique McCarthy, when we're going to critique our brother, right? We're going to critique uh, Hakeem Jeffries. And so I think, I think that's needed as well. And so I think there are some things that people, uh, especially people a little further left than Jeffries, would criticize about him, right? Um, I'm impressed with the remarks, right? Uh, I think some people on the left were saying, but is that really who the Democrats are? And one of the main criticisms of somebody like Jeffries is that he is very much a kind of neoliberal establishment Democrat, right? Your socialist Democrat would call him 
a, a corporatist Democrat, yeah. right? He's you, very you much in the lane of Nancy Pelosi. You don't, have, you don't have to be a socialist. I would call him. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, he's very much, again, in that same line and same mold as Pelosi in that way. Now, where my, my where my critique would come is to say, you know, one I think one of the greatest injustices of our generation of, of our time was the 2008 crisis, right, where the economy fell apart and banks and the other folks who start, started it got tapped on the wrist while the rest of America lost their homes and all that other stuff. Then they got money and got bailed out and still didn't give it back to the people. I'm not saying that Jeffries was responsible for that. I'm saying just like Republicans, establishment Democrats and others were just as responsible for that happening. And so there is a danger. And I think even people who are excited about this, I told you, he's my frat brother, all this other stuff. If we're going to make him the best he can be, there may need to be some pushback on those relationships with corporations, things of that nature. Now, we're going to wait and see what happens. I hope he and McCarthy are successful in doing what's right for the American people. But if we're too excited and not shrewd enough to say, but also I see there's some places where you could go wrong. Also, I see there's some places that if I don't push back on you, the corporations and others are going to push you too far to one side or the other. Then that's on us. And one person I'll I'll really point out spoke into this really well is Brianna Joy Gray, who was the prior campaign uh, communications director for Bernie Sanders. I don't agree with her on a whole lot of stuff, but I will say that she's always maintained her point of view in a principled way. Uh, And she would say that she was actually upset with the squad. She was upset with folks like Ro Khanna, who I think is Ro Khanna, who's from California, who I think is the heir apparent of the kind of socialist Democrat uh, position and saying, y'all should have pushed back in the same way that the Democrat. I mean, the Republicans pushed back. Why would y'all let somebody get in here when the truth of the matter is from from their point of view, Hakeem Jeffries set up a pack to go at. Uh, folks who are further on the left in the Democratic Party, folks like Nina Turner, folks like that. There was a pact to actually get them out the way. So why would you let him step in and not say anything? Right. This is some of the criticism that some would raise. And we're going to make sure that it is exposed. Anything to add just to making sure in being shrewd and actually representing the people we're supposed to represent. Why we also need to push back against folks who people would assume that we just need to agree with and protect. Yeah, I mean, as much as I loved Hakeem Jeffrey's speech, uh, Hakeem Jeffrey's speech, and as much as I love a good speech in general, take it from somebody who's been around Democratic politics a lot, been close to Democratic politics a lot. One of the things that could have been included in that speech is that Democrats are very good at putting rhetoric over reality. Um, and so while it sounds great, and that's the direction that we want to go in, um, it will take some uh, some careful management uh, of of power and time and resource to make sure that the caucus stays on the straight and narrow with Hakeem Jeffries uh, as the minority leader. And I do think that there was a missed opportunity in this moment of transitioning from uh, Pelosi to a new minority leader. Uh, to have some pushback and some debate. Like one of the things that the um, the Republicans were dealing with is the fact that they let McCarthy become minority leader, even though they had most of the disagreements 
that ended up being discussed in the speaker fight, they had these disagreements and issues with McCarthy when he became the minority leader. Um, and don't think, uh, dear Church Politics podcast listener, that the minority leader doesn't have a lot of power in Congress. Um, I, I think that, you know, next to the speaker, the person with the most power probably is not like the whip or some person on uh, majority leadership, but maybe the minority leader. Because um, when the speaker gets 10 bills, the first 10 bills go to the speaker, the second 10 go to the minority leader. Um, you know, speaker is going to give out all these chairmanships and that kind of stuff, but they're going to give a lot of deference to minority leader on who's going to be the ranking member on those committees. Uh, and, you know, ranking member on a lot of those committees, they get uh, security briefings. They get, you know, so there's a lot of power vested in, uh, in the minority leader. Obviously, minority leader gets that platform uh, to make speeches, to hand over the gavel, all that stuff. And so I think there was something to fight for uh, in uh, the minority leader fight. Uh, and I, I say that because I've heard people say that, well, strategically, progressives want to save their fire for when it really matters and when they're going to uh, when they're going to elect a speaker. I think that there was plenty to fight for uh, in the minority leader fight. Uh, you know, so to me, this is more of a critique of, uh, of, of progressives in the Democratic caucus in Congress because uh, than it is a, a criticism of Hakeem Jeffries because, you know, he's the minority leader, you know, is, you know, is nice work if you can get it. And if folks are going to let you have it that easily, you know, most folks. Yeah. Are gonna, and are and gonna again, it. you know, it was it was a good speech. Um, I have no reason to believe it wasn't a sincere speech. That's not what's being said. But we do have to make sure the Democratic Party is what he described in that and what he said, because as of right now, there's a lot of reasons to believe that it's not. And there's going to need to be some push and some pushing on the donor class who would have them not go in the right direction, right? To get to where we need to be. So if we get too caught up in the in the speaking and all that, we can miss the larger point and not be on our job. He has a job. <laughs> we have a job. And we're not on our job if we do get caught up, too caught up in the, in the uh, pomp and circumstance. Let me tell you something. Anytime someone starts to come into the and campaign coalition leaders and others i tell them please understand the and campaign is not here to prop up your favorite politician we will respect them we will be constructive in our criticism but it's not our job to make sure that we show them favoritism it's just not going to happen that's not who we are um now the shrewd among the people that i'm talking to get that and even even think it's beneficial to say, hey, this is just how they do things. I still support them, and I like you, but this is how this group operates. Those folks get it. Some don't, and that's understandable. But we're going to do our job. We're going to say what we have to say. So um, I, I thought this was a good conversation. I'm looking forward to see what McCarthy and to see what uh, what uh, Jeffries, what they do. Uh, but we have a job. They have a job. We need to push back and make sure that they're doing what's right for the people. And you can have a great speech, but that doesn't mean that we're going to assume that everything within that speech is the reality. All right. Well, that's really all we got uh, today. Uh, thank you for joining us again. If you want to support us and get some of our premium coverage, we're going to pr- talk about that church committee and the uh, point two point We're also going to talk about uh, the FBI and MLK uh, on Patreon. Uh, so if you want to hear that, 
Go to patreon.com slash church politics. You can hear even more. So thank you as always for supporting us. I hope you enjoy what you heard today. Uh, this is what we do on the church politics podcast. So as always, Ann Camp, there's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and want to render the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. Yeah, Lord. Yeah, Lord. Well, how like you?